If you're between the ages of four and eight, you're excused to kids' club. This summer, we have been walking through the parables of Jesus Christ as recorded in the book of Matthew. And as we've moved through them, we've had the opportunity to watch Jesus train his disciples, to teach them about the kingdom. And in so doing, we have been trained, and we too are learning about the kingdom. And this is vastly important. You see, as we've walked through this, it would be simple, it would be easy for you or for I to think that the kingdom is about me. It's about my needs, it's about my security, or even about my comfort. And we might even go so far as to spiritualize it. And, it, and to think it's about me knowing him, or me knowing him richly, or me knowing him accurately, or me doing all of the right things, or saying all of the right ways, and looking the part. And when we think the kingdom is about us, we miss it. Because the more we lean into the kingdom, the more we see as Jesus taught his disciples, the more that we see that the kingdom is about him and that it's his kingdom. So when Jesus teaches about it, he teaches us how opposite the Father's kingdom is than the kingdom of this world. That the values of the kingdom are different from the values of this world. And in fact, they're different from the values even of my flesh. And yet Jesus would call us to himself. And Jesus says, follow me. And he calls us and he teaches us to be generous sowers. And he calls us and he teaches us to press on in sowing even when the fruit doesn't seem faithful. He calls us and teaches us to take heart that his kingdom will be built up all over this earth. And he teaches us that the kingdom is worth giving up absolutely everything for. And he teaches us that he values the one so much that it's worth leaving the 99. And he teaches us forgiveness as a testimony that we have first been forgiven. And he teaches us forgiveness as a tool in showing others the gospel. So this morning as we step into this ninth parable, Jesus is going to teach his disciples the parable of the workers in the field. And we'll tie it to the other parables because you may note Jesus is building and building and building his disciples here, and it will all connect in the end. So if you turn with me in your Bibles into Matthew 20, if you've got your Bible, it's awesome. If you don't have one, there's a Red Pew Bible in front of you. We would love for you to follow along with us. To put this parable in context, we're going to start in Matthew 19. Chapter 19, verse 16, you'd be familiar with the story of the rich young ruler. This precedes the parable and is crucial to its understanding. Verse 16, a man walks up to Jesus and asks, What good deeds must I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus responds in good Jewish fashion. You want to know what deeds you need to do? Keep the commandments. So the man replies, well, which ones? which tells you something of his perspective. He wants to do the ones that will earn him credit and maybe not the other ones. And so Jesus gives him the fifth and the ninth commandments, which to clarify, tells us how we live rightly with man, not how we live rightly with God. How do we live rightly with each other? 
Jesus leans into this idea that this man is suggesting, how do I earn my way to the kingdom through my actions? And Jesus gives him permission. And the man very pridefully says, I've done all of these things. Now, if this is true, if this man has honored his parents, if he's never murdered, lusted, stolen, or lied, let's be honest, that's a pretty tall order. Fair to assume some of us have done that today. But if the man had truly done all these things, it actually testifies to the emptiness of mere morality. That this man has pursued following all the rules, he's accomplished it, and yet he's still looking for something, he's still searching. And so Jesus responds to his outer rule following and challenges him to an inner righteousness. If you are perfect, Jesus says, give away all of your possessions and follow me. The text says the man had great possessions, and so he went away sorrowful. He was not interested in following Jesus. He was interested in keeping his possessions. So let's pause for a second and consider this interaction. This man comes to Jesus with a question. What must I do? And he gets a response. Give it all away and follow me. And he walks away. This man comes face to face with the Savior with the Messiah, you couldn't get a better, more accurate picture than standing two feet away from the man, smelling his breath. This man was seeking eternal life, and he missed it. See, he wasn't looking for a savior. He was looking for rules to follow. And might that be you? Might that be you? See, it's easy for us to create a religion around Christianity where we just make it about following the right things as if that would earn us credit before our God. And friends, it doesn't. It does not matter how you're related to your fellow man if you're not rightly related to God. And the only way, the only way to be rightly related to God is through His Son, Jesus Christ. He missed the point. He missed the point. Let's get a little bit more on track. And we'll see that Jesus tells him to sell everything and give it to the poor. So we must at least consider, what is Jesus calling you to do? I mean, we at least have to consider it, don't we? Is Jesus calling you to give up everything? And the best answer is, maybe. Maybe. Jesus the Christ puts before the rich man the one thing that he could not give up. The text tells us he had great possessions, that he was interested in eternal life, but his stuff, his stuff was too much, so he walked away. So we must ask, what gets in the way of us following Jesus? Is it our stuff? Is it our wealth? Is it our family? Is it our career? What is it? Because in this passage, Jesus confronts us with the things that hold mastery over us, suggesting he alone can be the master. Give up everything, he says, and follow me. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that? It's easy for us to miss the point. Peter missed it. Because Peter gets stuck on the give up everything part. And he misses Jesus' point. Peter gets stuck on the give up everything part because what 
from Peter's perspective, he's already done it. He's already given up everything. And so in verse 27, Peter says, We have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? What will I get out of this? Peter asks. And if you sense a narcissism in Peter that I think is present in all of us, then you start to see Peter's challenge here. If I give away everything, what will I get? What will I get in return? What will I receive? See, Peter starts to worry about him. And when we're worried about us, we miss the kingdom. So Jesus gives him and us another lesson in kingdom economics. So this is his response still in Matthew 19. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And for the record, this is the picture of twelve thrones that was shown to the disciple John when he recorded the book of Revelation, found in Revelation 21, 14. And Jesus continues, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. So this is the, king, the economy of the kingdom, according to Jesus. Give up everything. Let nothing hold mastery over you. Leave it behind. And just for a moment, let's consider this list. Because it's not a, a list that's without expense, is it? When Jesus says, leave your houses, he's talking about your security. He's talking about your wealth. And when he leans into family life, he doesn't get it simple. He tells you that some will be called to leave brothers or sisters or father or mother or children. He gets exhaustive here as if there are times and places and seasons where your family might get in the way of you following Jesus. Many are those whose families don't believe and object to their faith. And it costs them something. And when Jesus takes it a step further and even calls them to give up their land, he's calling them to give up their career. That your land is how you gained sustenance. It's how you provided for yourself and for your family and for all those who leaned in on you. Jesus makes it abundantly clear your your faith will cost you. So while it might appear to Peter that he's given up everything, and that he may indeed be the last, Jesus is showing them that they will be given everything eternally and will be amongst the first. Conversely, like the rich young ruler who appears to have everything now, the first, he will someday discover that one day we will have lost everything. And this brings us to the parable in Matthew 20. This is the context which Matthew 20 plays out. So let's look at 20 verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. 
You might remember last week that a denarius was the amount of money that you paid a day laborer. Now, I've only lived here for a couple years. I don't know if day laborers exist here. I do know living in Memphis, Tennessee, that there was a Lowe's out on, highway, out on the highway that if you went there in the morning, there were a host of people standing in line waiting to work. It didn't matter if you were a business or a homeowner. If you had work you needed to get done, you could go and pay these men and they would come to wherever you needed it. And they would work for you for a day. And this is what was happening in this culture. In the marketplace, people who didn't have a steady job lined up for work. So this landowner, this owner of the vineyard, makes a deal. He goes out at the beginning of the day. By the way, the day starts at 6 in the morning. And he hires the first guy and he sends him into the field. And he pays them, according to his agreement, a full day's wage. The text continues in verse 3, and going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So around nine o'clock in the morning, he wanders back into the marketplace. Now I can only imagine he's picking up his wife at Starbucks when he does so. But he notices that there's still people who need a job, so he hires them and tells them this, I will pay you what is fair. Then according to verse 5, it happens again at noon and then again at 3 o'clock in the afternoon as well. And again, he hires these men. And in verse 6, about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. So he said, you go into the vineyard also. So you have a man who's got a vineyard. It's got to be sizable because he hires men at 6 o'clock in the morning. He hires men at 9 o'clock in the morning, at noon, at 3. And even at 5 o'clock, an hour of work left, he hires more guys and sends them out into the field. Verse 8, and when the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, call the laborers. And pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. So now the day has ended and it's time to pay your labor. So if you've worked the whole day, you'd expect a denarius. That's what you would pay a worker. But if you only worked part of a day, you would expect to only be paid for what you worked. For in fact, the foreman said, the owner told the workers, I will pay you what's fair If you worked a half day, you'd expect a half day's wage. If you worked only an hour, you'd expect very little. And yet the owner of the vineyard does something intentional here. He calls them to be paid from the last to the first. And that's instructive. We need to lean into that. Because as the text continues, when those hired at the 11th hour came, each received a denarius. They each received a coin worth a whole day's wage. You worked an hour, you get a whole day's wage. Verse 10, and when those hired first came, those who put in a full 12 hours, they thought that they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, These last worked only an hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching of the heat. So the owner replies to them, 
Friend, I'm doing you no wrong, verse 13. Did you not agree with me for Daenerys? Then take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose to do with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Jesus takes us back to that Matthew 19 passage, then here reversing the order and gives them something instructive. Peter asks a question. What then will we have? We who have given up everything, what will we have? And Jesus teaches a parable, a story that reveals the kingdom. And in this parable, the owner of the vineyard invites, continues to invite people to work. And yet the parable is not about work. The landowner pays each equally, and yet the parable is not about receiving equally. In fact, you will find that there are parables that teach the opposite, that God doesn't give equally. That'll rile you up a little bit, especially in our economy. Nor is it about the last ones receiving the same as the first one. That too could make a good parable about grace, but that's not the point of this one. What becomes striking about this parable is that the owner of the vineyard requested that the last be paid first, and in so doing, those who worked only an hour being paid first requires that those who worked three hours watch it happen, and those who watched six hours watch it happen, those who worked nine hours watched it happen, and those who worked 12 hours watched it happen, and what gets revealed in this parable is the entitlement of the first workers. See, they come to the owner and they tell him, we endured the burden, we endured the heat, we deserve more. The owner leans into his generosity and says, do I not have the right to pay what belongs to me? Jesus reveals the sovereignty of God over all things. The landowner says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Now, there are some who would take this parable merely in accordance with what it says and apply it to the Gentiles coming into the kingdom. They would argue that in the end, the Jews will find grace The Jews will find that the grace offered to the Gentiles is unfair. And while that might be a great eschatological perspective on this parable, it misses the point of Jesus teaching his disciples. Because he's preparing them practically to give their lives away, to build the kingdom. And so looking forward like that is the thinking of academics. And yet Jesus was discipling his men. What is he talking about? Now, if you remember as we step into this, the last parable that Jesus gave was the parable of the unforgiving servant. And that becomes instructive to us because he's contrasting the two. And we want to lean into that more as we continue on. But I think what Jesus is teaching here, what he's teaching his disciples and teaching us is a couple of key truths. That the question of what's in it for me misses the point. It puts me back at the center of the kingdom. And the kingdom is not about me. And it's not about rewards. And it's not about what I'll get. 
Now, to be fair, our God is sovereign. Our God is gracious. Our God is faithful. He abounds in generosity. He makes that clear at the end of chapter 19. We'll get a hundredfold more than we ever give up. And yet in this parable, he makes a different perspective. And I think what he does with this parables is to warn us about an entitlement mentality. Be careful about what you think you deserve or what you think you've earned. See, if we step this and we contrast it with the parable of the unforgiving servant, you saw last week a man who owed 10,000 talents, in today's terms, billions upon billions of dollars, and yet he was forgiven all that he owed. It's simple for us to leave a place of gratitude, to leave a place of thankfulness for what has been done for us, and instead to step into this place of the unforgiving servant who would not forgive a meager debt because he only considered what he was owed. He moved from the place of reveling in the forgiveness that he'd received and he worshipped what he had been owed. And friends, it's easy for us to do the same thing. That we can live not as a people who've been forgiven billions upon billions, but we can live as a people always considering what do I deserve? What am I owed? We can remind God, but I'm enduring the heat of the day. I've worked all day long. And we can approach him with this, I deserve this, I deserve that mentality with no concept at all of what we've been forgiven. We can become like the unforgiven servant. And friends, just like the unforgiving servant landed himself in prison, entitlement puts you in a prison. It reminds you of what you deserve and what you're owed. And it takes the focus off of what we have in Jesus. What he did on our behalf. What he did in calling us into his kingdom. What he did in calling us to be his laborers. What he did in forgiving us of our sins. I think what Jesus is doing here is he's stripping away Matthew's entitlement. See, time has passed as Jesus is taught these parables, and as these disciples go out, the fact that they're forgiven could get behind them. What they think they deserve could be before them, and we can fall into the same trap. A feeling like we are owed. I think that's what Jesus' point here is. I think that's why He rebukes Peter mildly, but I think He challenges him to God's faithfulness, that He is a faithful God and that the owner will do what is right. So rather than considering what you think you're owed, we lean into the owner, we lean into the Creator, we lean into our God who does what is right. Jesus in the last verse here in 2016 reverses the order he no longer says the verse shall be last and the last shall be first 
says the last shall be first. And he does so specifically. Emphasizing the point that the owner can do whatever he wants. Emphasizing the point that anything we have, all that we have, we receive from the owner. Because he's good and he's gracious. We need to remember the promise given in Matthew 19.29. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers or sisters, or fathers or mothers, or children or lands, for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. What Jesus puts before you here is the perspective that having received Him, having received forgiveness by Him, having entered into His labor, having walked away from things, and we cannot miss the fact that the kingdom will cost us, but that our God is generous, and we will receive far more than we ever give up. Friends, the challenge in this parable is to walk out of here as one who's forgiven. To live as one who is forgiven. To walk as one who is forgiven. For if you walk as one who is owed, it'll put you in a prison. Jesus calls us to walk as those who are forgiven, remembering that He is good. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank You for these truths, these parables, these kingdom principles, Father, that you taught your disciples and so taught us. Father, you call us, just like you called these disciples, to go into all the world and to make disciples. Father, you are sending us out. And Father, as we walk away from this church this morning, you give us the opportunity to worship you and to serve you. Father, as we walk away from here as a congregation, may we walk out as a people who are forgiven by Jesus Christ, who recognize the billions upon billions that was forgiven. And may we not be a people of entitlement, feeling like we're owed. Thank you for Jesus who paid our debt who redeemed us, who is still redeeming us. And as we walk out, Father, may we live in such a way that recognizes our redemption and lives out our forgiveness. Not wondering what we'll receive, but trusting You. Father, thank You for Your truth. Your Word is truth. In Your name we pray. Amen.